there was an interesting story about a new attorney uh, taking up the first case in the court. And her first, his first witness was a grandmotherly elderly woman. And so as he approached her and he asked her, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? And she responded, why? Yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I have known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been such a disappointment to me. You lie. You cheat on your wife. You manipulate people. You talk about them behind their backs. You assassinate their character. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you never will amount to anything. Yes, I know you. And the lawyer was absolutely stunned. And not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and he asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She again replied, why? Yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster too. He's lazy, he's bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone and his law practice was the worst in the entire state. Not to mention he cheated on his wife with three different women and one of them was your wife. <laughs> yes, I know him. And the defense lawyer almost died. And at this point of time, the judge asked the two lawyers came to the bench, approached the bench, and in a very quiet voice said, if either of you idiots dare to ask her if she knows me, I will send you to electric chair. <laughs> but did you know that Jesus has a lot of self-revelation about himself in the uh, uh, today? And we are going to touch on one. Jesus said, "I'm light of the world. I am light of the world." H.G. Wells uh, says that I'm an I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And another historian called Kenneth Scott Latourette say, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 30, and Jesus for only three. And yet the influence of Christ's three years ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from this man who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Did you know that Buddha never claimed to be God? Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. And yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth. But Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius say, I never claim to be holy. And Jesus say, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad say, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. 
And Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Because fundamentally, if you look at Jesus' message, it was all about himself. It's not pointing someone else. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is the gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. So today, I want to highlight to you this one word. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. But before I do that, I need to backtrack back to the book of Isaiah. Because back in the time, Isaiah already prophesied that this light would dawn in the future. But before I give you the Isaiah thing, I want to give you one point, and that is, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, many people find Old Testament very difficult to understand. But if you can remember these nine words, you actually have the flow of the entire Old Testament. It begins with creation, and then the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Exodus, because they were held in captive as, as a slave in Egypt, and then the Exodus out of it, Moses led them out of Egypt, and then Joshua led them into the promised land, which is conquest, and then when they have already entered the promised land, they have judges, ruled by judges for I think 400 years, and after that they have entered into the kingdom era, where the first king was Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom split into two, and then subsequently both kingdoms went into exile, northern kingdom attacked by the Assyrian, and southern kingdom by the Babylonians. So enter the exile uh, era for 70 years that God says they will be exiled for 70 years, and right down to the dot, 70 years later, they returned back because it was under the Persian Empire then. And they were not too uh, controlling. They allowed their people to return back to their homeland. Exile, uh, and then return. And after that, enter into the Greek phase of Alexandria, the great, great where God was silenced for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. There were 400 years God was silenced until John the Baptist came into the scene and burst out and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And so today, we are looking at Isaiah. It's during the kingdom time. Isaiah prophesies at a time over four kings. Four kings. Uh, it started with uh, oh, Jotam. Uh, before that was a guy, I can't remember his name. Uh, Jotam, and then Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. Uh, he preached over four kings and served as a prophet for about 65 years 65 years how, can, how many people can be in ministry for 65 years let alone married for 60 years uh, 65 years and, uh, and it is the time of Ahaz was a king, he was a very bad king and Isaiah was a prophet at that time the northern kingdom and Assyria, they were coming to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, so, so Ahaz was panicking. He was panicking. But I want to give you the actual words. But God was saying through Isaiah, 
that Ahaz, you should not panic. So in chapter 7, uh, these are the actual words. He said, be careful. So this is what uh, uh, God tells Isaiah to say to King Ahaz. Be careful. Keep calm. And don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stumps of firewood, because of their fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Rimalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Rimalah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves. And let us make the son of Tabil king over it. Tabil is a, is a Syrian prince. And make him king over Judah. Take, let's conquer this southern kingdom. And yet, in verse 7, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. And then verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So here, God saying through Isaiah to King Ahaz, don't be panicked. Yes, they may be coming to attack you. Don't panic. But King Ahaz refused to trust God. So he himself took the thing into his own hand. He went directly to Assyria, bypassing these two kingdoms that's attacking, bypassing, go up to Syria, the bigger bully, and say, you know what? I, I pay you money. You take all the articles from the silver, go in the temple and give it to Assyria and say, you come and attack Syria and the northern kingdom. And then I'll give you this money. So Assyria did the, did the thing. They came in and attacked the northern kingdom and Syria. But the thing is, after they conquered them, instead of stopping at the border, they crossed into Judah. They, I myself get rid of you as well. And so Isaiah chapter 7, 8 tells us these things. You can read about that. This is called the Assyrian crisis. And so it was a very bleak and dark time. And let me just read to you towards the end of chapter 8. This is how dark it was because the impending attack was coming very close. Uh, sorry. Chapter 8 says this in verse 21. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And in verse 22, then they will look towards the earth and see only distress. See only darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So this is the situation. It was terrible, dark time, glooming time. The Assyrian army is coming down to the southern kingdom. They were completely hopeless. But when you come to chapter 9, which is our text, verses 1 to 5, there is a hope. Isaiah said, Isaiah began to prophesy. Isaiah began to prophesy. Not just only the fulfillment of the immediate context, but there's always underlying something in the future. And so while chapter 9 talks about immediate crisis, the fulfillment later on, but it is also pointing towards the future. Look at chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. Nevertheless, remember chapter 8 ends up with utter darkness, gloom, and all that. The, the gloom will not last forever. Isaiah began to say this. The picture of total gloom, which closed the chapter 8, gives way to a picture of brilliant light. Look at chapter 9 again. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, 
He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. It is the northern tribe. Because when Israel, the, the highest northern tribe is, is Naphtali and uh, Zebulun. And when the Syrians come, they will be the, the first nation, first uh, tribe that will be attacked. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, see, it's, it's talking about future now. In the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. I'll come to that in uh, Matthew where this prophecy was actually fulfilled because Jesus began his ministry there. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you remember the story of Gideon's, where God reduced the number of soldiers from 300,000 to just very few to defeat the army. You have shattered the yoke, the burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. No more. The time will come. All this will be no more. And then verse 5, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be filled for the fire. Projecting in the future. The future kingdom has, doesn't involve warfare because Jesus is going to conquer the heart and not just the external of suppression. So the kingdom of God is not a, a kingdom of a, a kind of territory that when God says ah, the kingdom of God is here, it is about kingdom of a king reigning over individual heart that has no boundary in the sense. So every warrior's boots used in the battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning because the kingdom that Jesus ushered in is not about force. It is not about dominating areas. When we think about the kingdom of God, kingdom, we tend to think boundaries and, and all that. But the king is going to be king over your heart. So Isaiah basically was saying, darkness will be dispelled by light. Gloom will be replaced by joy. And God would have a nation of people ruled by a perfect king. So that is Isaiah prophesizing that one day in the future, is going to happen. And then now I want to fast forward to Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, spent 30 years, and then when he started entering ministry at 30 years old for three years only, look at where he started off. Verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, John meaning John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, where? In the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then verse 14 said, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Way back 700 years, when Isaiah prophesied, now Matthew is saying, aha, uh -huh. It is kind of now coming into fruition. 
to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew went on to quote verse 15, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has now come. Because the kingdom is going to be, he's going to be the king over, reigning over your heart. And not just territory in, in the sand. And so when he reigns over your heart, he doesn't need a territory. You can be in, in Pakistan, you can be in Afghanistan, you can be in Uzbekistan, you can be in America. Jesus is your king. The boundary is not geographical in the sense. And remember in the prayer by Simeon, when uh, Joseph and Mary went to present Jesus after eight days circumcision and all that, Simeon has been waiting for the light to dawn before he said, I, I am done. And in Luke chapter 2, this is what uh, Simeon's prayer was. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel has dawned. So here again, Simeon, not just only Matthew quoting Isaiah's fulfillment, but Simeon all his life sitting outside the temple waiting for this light to come. And finally, when Jesus walked up, when, when Joseph and Mary came with baby Jesus, after eight days to, re to dedicate him. And Simeon said, Aha, the light has come. Now, let me just fast forward. The light has dawned. And then fast forward now to John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. There is a seven great I am's in John's gospel. I'm the bread of life, I'm the shepherd, I'm the way, the truth, I'm the resurrection, and I seven great I am. And I am the light of the world is one of them. But if you know the context behind this phrase, it will even be even clearer to you why Jesus says, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world in the context of during the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating how God provided the Israelites when they left Egypt, traveling 40 years into the promised land, providing for them everything 40 years in the wilderness. And so Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering or Feast of Booth, they are all similar, meaning the same, was a joyous celebration as the Israelites celebrated God's continued provision for them. And so it was a celebration. And in the... In the temple area let me just see in the temple area where they always light up there are four candelabra huge candelabra where they light it up light it up they say that you saw the light is so huge the entire place is being lighted up that you can see four huge candelabra on top of it are all lights. And part of their rituals is that they will burn some light and then just put it at the, 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 the bottom of the candelabra. Everybody, just part of the rituals that, that people do that. And then they will be singing, they'll be reciting psalms and music, eating, and just rejoicings. 
And it is in that context. Let me see another, another angle. A big. It is in that context. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Because they were celebrating the light of Isaiah dawning. They were looking for the, the, the prophecy to be fulfilled. And Jesus said, I am. The light has dawned. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. It's the same. If you backtrack one chapter back into chapter 7, it's the same context of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles where part of the rituals is also about, about a priest. They will always descend to the pool of Siloam. I'm sure those who visited Israel, they've been to this pool of Siloam. Uh, in the midst of great music, celebration, and singing of Isaiah chapter 12, and, and then the, the priest will fill a golden pitcher with water from the, from the pool of Siloam. And then they will take the water in the midst of all the singing, dancing, go back to the temple. And once at the temple, he will pour the water into one of the silver basins by the altar. That's part of the rituals. And again, it is in that context Jesus stood up on the last and the greatest day. Chapter 7, verse 37. And Jesus simply said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, and Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within me. So Jesus said all this, I am in that kind of context as a replacement, as a fulfillment of what the ritual and the Old Testament is all about. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread. I am the living water. You know, in this age that we live in, uh, the pantry is full, but the heart is empty. So much to live on, uh, but so little to live for. It never ceases to amaze me that Melbourne being voted as the, the uh, best city in the world and that they are filled with people who are depressed. Never ceases to amaze me. So it only suggests one thing. Material things will never satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. Material things are overrated to satisfy the deepest struggle, deepest longing of our heart. The deepest longing is always relationship. It's always love. And material things can never penetrate to that level of satisfaction. And only Jesus who fulfilled that kind of deepest longing that we have. So let me, with the remaining time that I have, expound on this statement, Jesus is the light of the world, under three uh, categories. What is the function of light? It's quite straightforward. What is the function of light? The first one is light scatters darkness. Light scatters darkness. Straightforward. When you turn on the light, we dispel darkness. There's no more darkness when you shine a light on. There is darkness in the world. The world that we live in is becoming increasingly darker and darker and darker. Complete darkness is terrible. You can't, it paralyzes you. You can't move. 
And in Scripture, darkness is often a metaphor for sin, for death, for sin's consequences. And used metaphorically, it symbolizes distress, mourning, perplexity, ignorance, and death. Job chapter 5, verse 14, it says, Darkness has come upon them in daytime. At noon, they gloop as in the night. And then Job chapter 10 again talks about, Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have moments joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night of deep shadow and disorder where even the light is like darkness. So you can see, see they use metaphorically. It, it symbolizes distress, symbolizes mourning, perplexity. And if you use uh, figuratively about darkness in the scripture, it's about moral depravity. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3 said, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light. Why? For fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Darkness is real. We just need to turn on the TV we know darkness is real. Terrorism, war, oppression, sexual abuse, greed, pornography, filthy language, all kinds of things. Darkness is real. I know a friend who was a 16-year-old girl went to a school camp in uh, Scotland. Went to the toilet and raped by four men. Shattered her life. 16-year-old, raped by four men and never even reported police. Can you believe that? I have a friend who just, not a friend, a, a, a guy in the early 30s comes to church uh, in the last year because he had brain tumor. Just live very near to where I live. A Korean mother and I often go there and pray with the, her and the son. And one day I just received a text from his mother and said, my son just passed away last Monday. And I just read about uh, three K-pop singers. K-pop means Korean pop. Korean pop is now hitting the chart in the world. I don't know why. Uh, maybe because of kimchi or something. I don't know. K-pop. Everything about Korean now is making the world headlines, you know. Cosmetic. Everybody to go there for, for, for kind of plastic surgery. Everybody, you go in, they have a booklet. Maybe you want one face, one, two, three, four, five, six. You choose which one you want and you come up with a new face. And parents are giving gift cards to children and doing that kind of stuff as well. Uh, incredible. Three K-pop singers committed suicide in the space of three months. Two months. And I just read about the oppressive industry, about how they cannot have phone, shut away from the parents, and how they kind of like sold out to all these companies, manipulating all these young people, and, 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 and three of them committed suicide in the space of three, three months, two months. We live in a world of darkness. Uh, my colleague in an old church, his wife, uh, wrote a poem, and the poem said, A World Gone Mad. And this is what she says. Bad is good, and good is bad. 
Isn't it a world gone mad? Quill is gay and straight is sad. Crooked is good is the fat. He has two moms and she has two dads. In this confusion, we are to be glad. It's all about choices and freedom. Me, I, myself and all that. So I'm a mom but prefer to be a dad. I think, therefore I am. I can bear a child but prefer to be a man. If a drunk can blame a pub, why can't I blame my makeup? I am creative, artistic, and hot. Now I think I like to be God. Cut holes in the Bible, away with religious snobs. Accept my perversions, you googly snobs. Tolerance is insufficient, you humanity. I want to convert you to my liberty. Do what you like, right or wrong. Go skip, go hop, step, sing a song. When I am gay priest, money grass will be strong. These are the last days, they say, so I won't go away. You really have to pray, to pray and to pray. There's darkness around us. But Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Light scatters darkness. There was a prayer, when I was in Bible college in 1996, there was a lady during the evening time before meals, we always roster people to give a short devotion. And so this girl came up from Tasmania. She read this prayer. And this prayer has been circulated since then. But I heard it first in 1996, way back then. It's about the Kansas City in America. And this, I don't know who is this person who stood up and prayed during the, uh, the beginning of the year uh, when they, they have this kind of ceremony and all that. And this is what this man prays. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and have inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word in the name of moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and we call it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and we call it alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and we call it lottery. We have neglected the needy and we call it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and we call it welfare. In the name of choice, we have killed our unborn. In the name of right to lie, we have killed abortionists. We have neglected our, to discipline our children and we call it building self-esteem. We have abused power and we call it political savvy. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and we call it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and we call it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and show us any wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. And grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decision direct us to the center of your will. And I ask this in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So that was his prayer. Light scatters darkness. Secondly, the good thing, positively, light gives warmth. Yeah? Winter time, cold time, we like to hang around where the heat is. In the Bible, 
Warm is often equated with the comfort that God provides to the grieving, the rejected, and the oppressed. Light gives warm. Isaiah chapter 60 says this, Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Will end. We must learn to embrace darkness because darkness is real. We must not ignore it. We must not, as Christian faith, we tend to, you know, Christian, we are very good in just ignoring things sometimes. Like as if that is not there. As if that faith can just blind everything away and not accept reality just because we quote the word faith, you know. It's real. Our faith needs to be tested. And oftentimes our faith are tested during crisis time. They say the crisis time don't make, your, make a man, but actually reveal a man. It helps you to see where you are when you are in that kind of state. But light comforts. God gives comfort. It gives warmth. That no matter how difficult our circumstances may be, God draws near. And that's the story of Christmas. That God coming to us. Matthew chapter 11. The famous... Uh, uh, verse that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. When in doubt, go to God. When you can't trace God's hand in your life, you must trust God's heart. When you can't trace God's hand, you must trust God's heart. Light gives warm. On Christmas, the whole story of God coming to us is for this beautiful reason of dwelling among us, be among us. I can't find any more comfort than that. Among all the apologetic kind of answers about pain and suffering and all that, I think the most comforting answers to me above all else is that God understands. It's not about cognitively, you can find answers and all that. This is only intellectual. It doesn't touch your heart. And human being is not just only intellectual, it's our heart. And so when we're talking about God, it's not just knowing about God, you're going to experience God in your life. Too many Christians never experience God. They only know about God. They can understand, they can argue, they can formulate stuff, theological position and all that. But they don't experience God in their life. And, and, and the most comforting answers to me about pain and suffering and all this apologetic kind of un- question that people have, to me is still that where no sufficient answer can provide and satisfy your intellectual quest is that God understands and God He suffers with you. God came down and dwelt among you. And so the best counselling method is not about giving answers. It's about just being there. It's about your presence there with the person. I've learned many, many times as a pastor, if I don't know what to say, it's better not to say anything. <laughs> it's always safer. Just your presence alone 
provides tremendous amount of comfort. Uh, light gives warmth. Light. Jesus gives warmth. Jesus encourages you. Jesus dwells with you. Jesus goes through struggle with you. And he understands. Did you know, I always tell people, do you know on the cross, Jesus suffered two most difficult emotions that every human can ever, ever endure. I believe these two emotions are the hardest to cope in life. First one is loneliness. Loneliness is one emotion I believe is the hardest to cope. Very hard to cope. And second emotion that hardest to cope is rejection. And did you know that both emotions Jesus experienced on the cross? He suffers loneliness. Even on the Trinitarian, God the Father, He almost said, Father, why have you forsaken me? That, that, that eternity, Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The loneliness, all the disciples scattered, the one that he spent three years with, eat together, slept together, and feed them, let them see the miracles happen, and all that. The disciples all scattered away. There was only one disciple, John, and the mother, and Mary Magdalene, was under the foot of the cross. That's it. Three. Where are the people who eat the, the bread and the and saw Jesus' miracle, the, the man that was made, in John chapter 9, the man was made blind, uh, uh, healed from blindness. And wh where are they? And that two emotions, Jesus understands when he was on the cross. And that is why Hebrews talks about that, isn't it? For we do not serve a high priest who is unable to sympathize with all our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Because he's a perfect, born of the virgin, perfect human beings. Being. And he tells us what it means to be a human being. Did you know, ever thought about that? Jesus is teaching us what it means to be a human being. And we often like to say that uh, when we did, did something wrong, we like to say, oh, it's, it's, we, we are human after all. <coughs> no, 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 no. You're not human enough. It's not about you're only human. You're not human enough. Because Jesus is a perfect human being. He showed us what it means to be a human being. So light gives comfort that this light has dawned. Jesus came to us, dwell among us. And he brings us comfort into this dark world. And thirdly, and lastly, light gives direction. Light gives direction. How would you get anywhere without lighted signs? And traffic lights pointing the way. Light gives direction. Even here, sometimes Wednesday night, we have our young adult here studying, and after, because the switch is over there, when we turn off the switch, it's so dark, you almost need to turn on your, your flashlight on your phone to, just to get to the door. Light gives direction. And what do we turn on our headlight while driving at night? It gives us direction. And this light gives us direction. Therefore, Psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 105, God's word is a what? Your word is a lamb unto our feet. Because God has entered the world, He, light has dawned, and He revealed Himself through the word, and the light is a lamb unto our feet and a light for our path. In John chapter 12, it says this, Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light, 
just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. You know, you read through John Gospel and one, two, three, the letters John is all about light and darkness, love and truth. These two dominant themes appeared in Gospel of John and first, second, third book of John. Light, darkness, truth and, and falsehood is always there. And here Jesus is saying, well, light is here. While you have the light, you walk in the light. John Stott, the English statesman, died a number of years ago, singer throughout his life, uh, devoted his life to the cause of Christ. And in one of the books he wrote, he says this. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe is in the only God I believe in is the one Frederick Nietzsche ridiculed. Frederick Nietzsche is a German philosopher. Let me just repeat it. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on a cross. Because Nietzsche always wants God to be a superman. And he ridiculed God. He said, the only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on a cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, and the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from torn bricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. This is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears, and death. And He suffered for us. And Christmas is about that. The starting point of this God descending to us. The Word make Himself flesh and dwell among us. A light has dawned. They accumulated in His death, resurrection, ascension. And the Holy Spirit dwell in us. Explosion of churches. Right until now, becoming darker and darker now, even though the light has dawned, simply because the churches have strayed away from the teaching of Christ. And now, at this point of junction, we then are waiting for the return of Christ in the future. Let me finish with this story. I heard about a story about a mother who has three children in, uh, in England, in London. And uh, twins followed by the youngest son. And the youngest son was only six years old but he was extremely gifted in playing tennis. Six years old, and he represented under 18. That tells you how good he was. 
But the downside of that is that the mother always has to send the three children round for tournaments. And to make it even harder, the youngest son suffered from motion sickness. And so she recounted once that he were, they were returning back from a tournament and sun has already set, so they decided to stop by a petrol kiosk and pump petrol and get some food to eat. And so when they reached, they pumped the petrol, went into the kiosk, get the children to buy some food, and she was queuing up to uh, pay. And as she was, it was a long queue, and it was just queuing up. The two oldest twins came running to, 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 to the mother. Said, mom, mom, it's coming! He's coming. He's going to vomit. He's coming. So the mother turned back and saw his son's face. He's coming. You know, the mom knows. He's coming, coming in the, in the store. So the mother instinct ran over, scooped her up, <laughs> all over her hair, her clothes, whole body filled with vomit. And everybody around her stunned, look at them, don't know what to do, laugh, clap, some even clap and hoo-ha and all that. And may I suggest to you, that is almost like a story of Christmas, that God coming to us in the midst of all this vomit and the light has dawned. And may this Christmas, may you know that Jesus is the light of the world. May you embrace this light and let it shine on your path and follow him and give your heart to Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for, for the beautiful story of Christmas. God with us. Forgive us. Uh, year after year, we go through it. Uh, Sometimes we kind of uh, immune to, to the story. Uh, we don't quite think deeper enough uh, to know that this God came to us. Emmanuel, God with us, came to us, dwell among us, and to dispel darkness. And the darkness has been dispelled for centuries when Christians conquered the world, influenced the world, the entire Western civilization, the, the government, all has been built by, by Christians' moral virtues. University started by Christians, hospital, social work, you name it. But we have departed and the world is turning to become more and more, become darker because we have failed to be the light of the world. And now we await for the second coming of Christ that you promised us too, way back in the Old Testament about that too. And we are just in between that period. Lord, guide us. May you be our light. May we always know that light dispels darkness. Light brings comfort, gives warmth, and light gives us directions. May this Christmas time, as we celebrate, as we give gifts, we are reminded of the greatest gift given to us and receive it into our heart. As we sing this closing song, yes, it may be an Easter song, but that is accumulating at that end as well, starting from Christmas, that because you live, therefore we can face tomorrow. So we bless you, Lord, 
We thank you. Amen.